This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 309th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a lot from SVP. So this is our day two, quote unquote, even though it was asynchronous. So it was our day two, but not necessarily the same as your day two, if you went. We're going to be covering the Dinosaurs Systematics, Diversity and Ecology session of the posters and talks. A meaty topic. It really is. It was basically everything that wasn't theropods. Yep. And if you want to hear all about the theropods, we covered that in our last episode. Yep. And we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Pararabdodon. But before we get into all that, we have a couple of patrons that we would like to thank via our randomization generator. And this week, we'd like to thank Ewan, Wyatt, Ray, Kelly, Aussie David, Bilal, Vikram and Karthik, Ayrton and Everett, Leah, and Stego Sophie. Yeah, thank you so much for joining our community. We hope to see you in the Discord if you're not there already. Your support helps us to keep this podcast going, and then we're able to do things like cover SVP, and we really appreciate you. So if you want to join this growing community, then check out our page, patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, I'm back into leading into the news because Sabrina took over last week. Garrett doesn't like it when he's not starting the show. <laughs> yeah, I like it better. Other than last week, it's only happened once, and it was when we were doing, I think, bonus content for Jurassic Park and Jurassic World dinosaurs. Yeah, it's no good. <laughs> I start the news. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a lot to get through, so I should get going. The first one that I'm going to talk about from the Dinosaur Systematics, Diversity, and Ecology session was a talk by Eric Gorsik, and he was talking about a new titanosaur from Egypt. Ooh. This one's from the Karga Oasis, which is a late Cretaceous assemblage. So we're getting firmly into titanosaur territory, obviously, at that point. Mm -hmm. There aren't very many late Cretaceous finds in Africa. Only four titanosaurs are known from the entire continent. Yeah. Oh, is one of them Paralatitan? Actually, I don't think he included that one. I don't know why it's missing from the list. The ones that he does have are Mansurosaurus, which is that one that looks like European titanosaurs, and that one's from North Africa, also from Egypt, in fact. Then there's Rukwa Titan, Shingopana, and Rapetosaurus, which were from Southern Africa, and they all look like other Gondwanan dinosaurs. Hmm. So like South America... Antarctica and Australia. So there's sort of this divide we've talked about potentially between the continent and the northern ones looking like European dinosaurs and the southern ones looking like other Gondwanan titanosaurs. But this new description from Western Desert Egypt is known as the Karga titanosaur because it hasn't been officially described. This is, I think, the first time that it's been presented and therefore it doesn't have a real name yet, it still has a nickname. It was found about 200 kilometers east of where Mansurosaurus was found, and it was originally found actually way back in 1977 by a team from Berlin. Well, so it's one of those that's been sitting in a museum for a while. Yeah, I'm really surprised because there's so few finds. You'd think there would just be tons of people tripping over each other to study something like this, but apparently not. They found dorsal vertebrae, a pelvic girdle, hind and forelimb bones, and unfortunately, some of the elements have gone missing while switching between universities. So maybe that's part of the problem, that it was moving around a lot. 
Most of the elements are distorted, unfortunately, but you can see this really cool, what they call an X-shaped laminae on the vertebrae. And it's got a nice rhyme to it. <laughs> X-shaped laminae mm -hmm. on the vertebrae. Yeah. <laughs> you also see it on Saltosaurus and Lorenosaurus. So it's not a completely unknown feature, but it's really well defined on this Karga titanosaur. It looks literally like almost a stamped X on one of those old Roman stone buildings or something. It's like, it's really well-defined. Like X marks the spot. Pretty much. <laughs> this obviously helps link the Karga Titanosaur to Saltosaurus and Lorenosaurus, and therefore to South American and European Titanosaurs, which is kind of interesting because that's half Gondwana, half Europe. The limb bones, though, are really interesting because they're very thin. They're super slim. They look like they're completely squished and maybe they were distorted a little bit but even if they are they're very very thin they look like a shoulder blade basically being really narrow in one dimension there was one funny comment where <laughs> gorsick said the left tibia has been missing quote since 2000 when matt lamana checked it out end quote <laughs> <laughs> oh no so i guess he either still has it or checked it out and lost it I'm not sure, but it was pretty funny that he called him out. Just throwing some shade. Yeah. Phylogenetically, the Karga titanosaur looks like it's pretty close to Mansurosaurus. Not surprisingly, it's from the same age and place, basically, but not as a sister taxa. So when they did the phylogeny, it was still a little ways away. So they look like they are, in fact, separate species. But unfortunately, we don't have much overlapping material between the two. We have a little bit, but not a lot, which is what you want when you're trying to compare species. And then at the end of the talk, he pointed us to the Salem poster, which could be a second individual, but is better preserved. So I'm just going to jump straight to that poster. And it did not disappoint. There was a neck vertebra, a tail vertebra, five back vertebrae, and one tibia. So even though the tibia was apparently misplaced <laughs> by Matt Lamana, there's another tibia from another specimen. So maybe that'll help fill in that gap if we never find it again. Yeah. And Salem poster refers to the person who made the poster. Yes, his name is Bilal Salem. And he pointed out that this titanosaur appears to be from an adult based on some of the features of the vertebrae. And therefore, in addition to it being in good shape, less distorted, it being from an adult also makes it a good pick potentially as a holotype or for naming a new dinosaur. And while we're on the sauropod train, might as well just keep going. What a great train. It was... <laughs> Great. There's a decade of fossil collections that were described from Zimbabwe, and they're from the Mpandi formation of Sentinel Ranch in Thule Basin, Zimbabwe. It was presented by Michelle Zondo, and really it was a bunch of work with the Natural History Museum of Zimbabwe, which I don't have on our map. I need to find it and then get it on our dinosaur map. We just passed 200 dinosaur museums on the map. Yeah. Added a bunch in China thanks to some suggestions from a listener. But back to Zimbabwe. So they had a total of 60 postcranial bones, all from sauropodomorphs that were reported on this poster. They look similar to a variety of known dinosaurs, but again, there's always a few distinctions. And then the question of, is it individual variation or is it a new dinosaur? In general, there's a lot of similarities to Massospondylus and some other dinosaurs from the Elliott Formation, specifically the Upper Elliott Formation, which is from the early Jurassic. The Lower Elliott Formation is from the late Triassic. So it's somewhere around that boundary of Triassic into Jurassic, which is a pretty important time for dinosaurs and mm -hmm. sauropods since that's when they were exploding. That was around the, when they started to take over. Indeed. So we probably have a date for the early Jurassic for this area. And then hopefully a lot more research goes on there because it seems like there's tons of fossils to be found, especially sauropods. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're talking about large dinosaurs, there was a poster about pathologies in especially large dinosaurs. Apparently, there are more paleopathologies in large dinosaurs than small dinosaurs. Do you think it's they fall down more or when they do, it hurts more? It could be. They didn't give a guess at why. But they did mention that theropods have an antagonistic lifestyle, and that might be why they have more injuries from biting each other and fighting in general mm -hmm. or hunting. They also found more paleopathologies in North American dinosaurs, 
They think that might be because there have been more studies on those animals, though. Like T-Rex, we talk about, is one of the most studied. Triceratops is up there, too. Well, Sue alone has a bunch of pathologies. Yeah. There's also more in late Cretaceous dinosaurs, which is probably, again, a sampling bias. But interestingly, theropods and ceratopsians seem to preserve more injuries than other groups of dinosaurs. Maybe, again, that's the antagonistic lifestyle. Ceratopsians, we know, locked horns a lot and did stuff like that. But thyreophorans and sauropodomorphs also have a fair number of paleopathologies, but they point out that those are more likely to be disease than from injuries. Oh no. Yeah, maybe it's their weird bodies or something, something about the way that they're shaped. I could see with sauropodomorphs, they have so much stress on those joints and things that that could lead to some problems. But in general, I think we need more research into paleopathologies. Mm -hmm. They're always very interesting. And painful sounding. Yeah. Next, we had another sauropod after that brief break away from sauropods. Oh, good. We're back. Yeah. Back on track. (laughs) So it was by John Whitlock, and it was about a juvenile diplodocid, which was previously tentatively assigned to an apatosaurus. But you could tell it was a juvenile by its size and the location it's from being a North American. It might have a couple unique features in it, but unfortunately their research got stalled because of COVID, so they didn't have too much to present. But they did say that they found a small skin impression in the jacket and then immediately made it sound less important by saying that there was nothing unique about it. It was just 32 scales, one to one and a half centimeters in diameter, so about a half inch. And the whole thing is about very roughly 10 by 5 centimeters, so it wasn't that big. It looked like a lot of other sauropod skin impressions that they've seen, and it isn't anything special. No, still (laughs) cool to study skin impressions. I think so, but I guess this one isn't particularly groundbreaking. But in another poster from the same session, there was a more impactful, I might say, scale (laughs) poster from sauropods. It was about Diplodocus scale diversity, and specifically the diversity that was seen at the Mother's Day Quarry, which is in the Morrison Formation in Montana. So that's where your favorite dinosaur is, among others. Yeah, I'm guessing they found that quarry on a Mother's Day. Yeah, probably, yeah. (laughs) The fossils there are mostly juvenile diplodocids. They say there have been at least 15 individuals found there, so it's quite the sauropod quarry. Mm -hmm. The mother load. (laughs) The hypothesis, though, is kind of sad. They think that the Mother's Day Quarry might be formed by a group of juveniles that got to a watering hole that was dry, and then they all died Oh, because they had nothing to drink. And then their skin dried out, and they turned all leathery and basically mummified before getting buried and eventually leaving these skin impressions. Well, that took a dark turn. It did, yeah. But on the bright side, we have some good skin impressions. The scales feature a variety of patterns. They have rectangular scales, which are about five millimeters in size or a little less than a quarter inch. They have globular ones, which are about the same size, and oval scales, which are the biggest, and they're about 10 millimeters or coming up on a third to a half of an inch. Sounds like a fun pattern. Yeah, they also said that some of the scales look like they're arching in a way so that they're sort of wrapped around a limb. They apparently look a lot like a crocodilian limb. Hmm. And they have different sort of patterns of these different scales. So they look like they're on small animals and the patterns are changing because it's different parts of the body in a relatively small space compared to what it would take to have that sort of impression on a larger dinosaur. So like all fossils... A tragedy for the individuals, but something really nice for us to look at and learn from. So they didn't die in vain, although they had no way of knowing and it took millions of years. (laughs) Yeah. I guess it depends on your definition of vain. (laughs) Yeah. One last sauropod paper. There was a poster by Stephen Finch talking about tooth replacement rates in sauropods. This was also one of my favorite topics because I am jealous of dinosaurs in their constantly getting new teeth because they don't have to worry about anything with dental care. Basically, in the amount of time we spend between dentists, they just grow a new set of teeth. (laughs) So what do they need tooth care for? They've found that in sauropods, they have some of the highest tooth replacement rates, if not the highest tooth replacement rates. But they did some time estimates for tooth formation in a few groups that we haven't seen before. 
In Abidosaurus, it took about 18 months to grow a new teeth. That was the longest from their sample and seems actually relatively long for a dinosaur. Yeah. Diplodocus only took about six months and Camarasaurus was in between at 10 months. That's crazy. Yeah, six months. It's like you wouldn't have to worry about anything. You just if a tooth gets chipped, you get a cavity, whatever, it's, it's going to be gone soon. Yeah. It's like getting a paper cut. Ooh, maybe you feel it a little more than a paper cut, but yeah, it does but, get replaced. Yeah, it'll be gone soon. Nothing to worry about. It all works out because they weren't capable of dentistry. True. Yeah. They didn't have the, the proper tools for that, for sure. I've got a group of papers that are about hadrosaurs. I want to start with Matthias Wasik because he was very enthusiastic about hadrosaurs. He said they were his favorite group of dinosaurs. There are over 60 species of hadrosaurs and hadrosaurs have some of the best data sets that we have for any dinosaurs because we find them all over the place. Cows of the Cretaceous. Yeah, they seem to be pretty common. <laughs> so yeah, they're they're really good to study. But unfortunately, the growth rate studies, he thought, were a little bit inconsistent. So he went back and tried to figure out how fast they grew and when they were at adult size and things like that. They expanded the number of specimens from 58 to 417. Wow. So yes, you have to have a passion for what you do is the lesson in this. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad because we've talked before about how we need someone who's really passionate about hadrosaurs to get in there and also help flesh out the family tree of hadrosaurs because it is a mess. Yeah. Now we know at least one person. Yeah. So at least in terms of their growth rates, we now have a little bit more information. He found that yearlings were misidentified as two-year-olds in a previous study. Oh, so they got big. Exactly. Some previous studies were more consistent with his results than others, but what he found is that they achieved asymptotic body size by about seven to nine years old. And this goes back to that thing we sometimes talk about with dinosaurs where they don't necessarily completely stop growing the way we're used to. You know, you get to a certain age and then you stop growing completely. Dinosaurs are more on an asymptote. So they just start growing a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less, but they could keep growing well into their 20s or 30s, just very little at that point. Not in all dinosaurs, but in some dinosaurs. Interestingly, he didn't find any yearlings in his data set. Hmm. There could be a few reasons for that. I mean, obviously there are a lot of specimens, so it seems like it's probably a real missing thing. It could be that they survived in a really high proportion to other dinosaurs, which seems weird unless you think about them living in herds and maybe the juveniles were being protected by their parents. It could also be, though, that there is a taphonomic bias where the juveniles left the area, and this area was apparently pretty dangerous because of the flood season that it had, which is where a lot of our fossils came from, and maybe the juveniles knew to stay away from the scary water and therefore weren't preserved in the same place as some of the other adults. Maybe they all went to some watering hole together that turned out to be dried out. Could be, yeah. Like those poor little diplodocids. Mm -hmm. The Mother's Day quarry. That shall live in infamy. <laughs> and of course, as always, when there are small bones that are missing, it's possible that it's fossil selection bias and that it's just small fossils didn't fossilize as well. But in any event, the result is that his method of using histology rather than estimating growth curves based on the size of bones is much better. So it's better to use histology, slice into the bones, count the rings, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we've heard that before. It makes sense. Yeah, especially because this is one of many papers at SVP this year that pointed out that size is very poorly correlated with age. Right, especially thinking about like the Allosaurus bone bed. Yeah, we're like, you can be the biggest one and the youngest one at the same time. So it's really hard to pick that stuff out. For any listeners in Missouri, there is some good news. There's some new support that Parasaurus, the Missouri State Dinosaur, is probably in fact a valid genus. Well, that's good. It had been synonymized in 1979 by Baird and Horner with Hypsobema. And they do have some features in common. The big problem at that point was we didn't have a lot of Parasaurus bones to compare. So the argument's basically the common one of, well, there isn't enough of a difference between this newly named thing with the previously named thing. So we shouldn't be erecting a new name based on it. Parasaurus is an iguanodontian, if you're into that kind of thing. Otherwise, you can just consider it a hadrosauroid because iguanodontians have sort of a 
controversial phylogenetic position. But in any case, in 2018, Brownstein argued that Parasaurus should be split out again into its own taxon, and that is supported by this talk based on some new material. So from the 1990s till 2009, some researchers returned to the holotype site and dug out some more bones. It was only 100 feet away from the very spot where the holotype bones were dug up. They found a juvenile with a dentary and several other bones, so you get teeth as helpful. And in total, they recovered over 250 bones of dinosaurs, turtles, and other animals. Mm. But unfortunately, in 2009, they had a greenhouse that was covering the site that they were periodically returning to, and it got destroyed by an ice storm. So that no. kind of halted operations there. But then in 2017, they built a new greenhouse and continued excavating. They recovered a crushed skull and neck, as well as some more teeth that look like a basal hadrosauroid. They also found an articulated tail, hands with a thumb spike, and a total of at least three individuals. Nice. Yeah, so quite a bit of material to work from there. And when they put it together, they found that it was a close relative to Eolambia and Protohadros, and not really a close relative of Hypsobema at all. And then just as an aside, they said that Appalachian taxa are often called relics. That's something that's come up a few times at SVP this year too. But it might just be that Appalachian taxa are just older than previously thought, and we didn't have a precise age of the rock. So it could just be that these aren't new things that look old. They're just old things that look old, <laughs> <laughs> which would make sense if they're older than we thought. But there you go. If you're in Missouri, your state dinosaur is probably actually a dinosaur. Good. And not just a synonym for some other thing. Keeping on with the hadrosaur train, there were some perinatal hadrosaur bones from Baja, California in Mexico. And this one was on a poster by Jonathan Cabrera Hernandez. And I said during our live stream that I was going to figure out what perinatal was. The etymology of it is around birth. So it includes the period just before and after birth. Hmm. I couldn't remember if it was dinosaurs in eggs or if it was dinosaurs that had freshly hatched out of eggs. And it turns out it's both. That's probably why I was confused. These perinatal hadrosaur bones were from the El Gallo Formation, and that's in El Rosario in Baja, California. They found a Magnapolia egg, which is the first ever egg from the area, and they also found the first ever Lambiosaurine perinate in Mexico. No. It could be a really important site, especially if they can find a nesting site in the El Gallo Formation with a lot more bones. It could be like the two medicine formation where there's just tons of hatchlings all over the place. At least that's what they're hoping. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Baja California doesn't have a lot of vegetation, so it's a good place to get out and go prospecting. There's another paper looking at how hadrosaurids grew up and it compared these various growth curves using histology slices from Prosaurolophus. So we know that Wasik would approve because they're not doing it based on the size of the bones. Mm -hmm. These individuals have previously been reported to range in age from two to seven, but they found that the seven-year-old one was still missing the EFS, which is, I'll get into what an EFS is a little bit more later, but that means it probably wasn't really an adult, even though to this point, everyone's called that an adult prosaurolophus. Overall, it looks like these prosaurolophus might have grown a little bit slower than a typical hadrosaur and that they took longer to reach full size. But even at their slower growth rate, they probably reached sexual maturity around three to four years old when their cranial ornaments grew. And that's also later than other hadrosaurs. Three to four years old makes you a late bloomer <laughs> for a hadrosaur. Mm -hmm. And because that seven-year-old was still growing, they might have reached a larger size than previously estimated. That makes sense. Although, who knows? The more we learn about dinosaur growth rates. Yeah, that's true. It could just be that that seven-year-old was something weird about it that it hadn't finished growing. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So as promised, I'm going to go into what the EFS is. There was a really, really good talk by Julie Reisner, and she was actually supposed to be part of the Cincinnati Hosting Committee because that's where SVP was supposed to be this year before it moved to online only. But it will be back there in a couple of years, so we'll get to see all the good dinosaur stuff that there is in Cincinnati. Her talk was all about histology, kind of at a high level, explaining the different things that you can find out by slicing into a bone and looking at it under a microscope. The study has taken 15 years and it's been on Ineosaurus in the two medicine formation. It's very intense, a lot of information that you went over. Yeah, sounds very thorough. Yes, definitely. A quick summary of 15 years of work. <laughs> Basically, most animals die in their first year of life. Most dinosaurs do not reach adulthood and therefore most dinosaurs are still growing when they die. And... When you slice into their bone, you can get a good estimate of how much they were still growing. Because once they reach adulthood and they stop growing, you don't see any more indications of growth and it's harder to estimate their age. But that turns out not to be too much of a problem because there aren't that many adult dinosaurs or fully grown, maybe I should say. They sampled nine tibia, sliced into them and got histology, found that the smallest individuals have hatching lines. This is something I hadn't heard of before, mm -hmm. but a hatching line is like a lag, but when an animal hatches, so there's a little bit of a mark in the bone when an animal hatches, and you can see that's the day it was born, basically. That's pretty cool. So you can better estimate the perinatalness of it? Yeah, or maybe you can see that it was recently hatched, period, because if it's been out of the egg for a few months, then that hatching line gets absorbed into that sort of center medullary cavity. Mm. So then, yeah, you can't see it anymore. And just in case I haven't mentioned it in a while, a lag stands for a line of arrested growth and is basically the exact same thing you see on a tree with a tree ring. It's, the assumption is that there's a period once a year when the dinosaur cannot get as much food. It's very common in animals. You see it in modern animals' bones too. And it leaves a little bit of a slow growth line in the bone. So you can count those up and get an estimate for how old the animal is. There's also something called an LVC, which stands for localized vascular change. And that might show slowed growth, which is basically the same thing as a lag, but it just doesn't slow quite as much. So it doesn't leave as obvious of a line in the bone. And then the last thing that happens in a dinosaur's age in terms of these lines is the EFS, which stands for external fundamental system. And that's basically when you have very closely spaced lags at the end, and it indicates that it's growing really slowly. 
and presumably it might have even stopped after all of those lags got really close together because it's hard to say if it spent some time afterwards where its bone just stayed the same. That's a lot of indicators to look at. Yeah. But some of them are really hard to see and can confused with things like polish lines and other features. But going back to Iniosaurus, since that was the real thing she was studying, it just happened to have a phenomenal explanation of all these features of histology. None of the Iniosaurus individuals in the study were adults. None of them had the EFS. They were all still growing. None of the lags, in other words, were close enough together to count as an external fundamental system. Did she say how many individuals there were? I think there were nine, but I'm not positive. This means that we don't have any full-grown Iniosaurus adults yet, so we don't know how big they got. But we can tell that they had the most rapid growth period at a very young age until they were about four to six years old. And that's probably because they needed to put on weight really quickly in order to protect themselves from predators. That's usually what we assume with these super rapidly growing herbivores at young ages. Sort of like turtles, as long as they don't get stepped on a sauropod first. Or bite off something's head. Anyway, <laughs> They're not completely innocent. Yeah, so I hear. We've got a few other studies looking really close at the details of how dinosaurs developed. One of the coolest things at SVP, period, I think, was this technique called clarity. And I don't know if we've talked about it before, but it is amazing. Care to clarify? Yeah. <laughs> so I should also say that this talk was by Matteo Fabri. And what they did is they, they use clarity. It's an acronym for something really long. And it what it does is it removes the lipids from a developing embryo and then you can look inside it. It basically makes the embryo clear so you can, if you crack open the egg or whatever, you can see into it and all of these details on how it's growing. And then what you can do is you can highlight areas of the animal with immunofluorescence. So you can add something that makes the bones light up yellow and the brain light up pink and the nerves light up blue and you get like this crazy it's like one of those old books where you flap the layers down mm -hmm. on top of it with the clear pages and you see like the different layers of something it's just like that in real life it's yep. it's totally amazing and you get a clear picture <laughs> that's true it clarifies things mm -hmm. one might say what they were looking for the reason they were using this technique in this study was to look at brain development and how that interacts with skull development so they wanted to see what comes first, the brain or the skull, basically. And what they found was that the brain forms first and it actually drives the shape of the skull. So in other words, the brain forms and then the skull ossifies around the brain. The last part to ossify on a baby bird slash dinosaur is the skull roof, which is just like the soft spot on a baby. Human baby. <laughs> yeah, to be specific, I guess in this context, we need to say that. The important thing about this is that it basically shows that the brain isn't being forced into a shape by the skull. The brain can form first and, you know, it, it's less susceptible to the pressures of the skull than the other way around. So the skull kind of has to suit the, the needs of the brain. And presumably that means that the brain isn't being limited in some capacity by the skull. So that's pretty important in an evolutionary context. They also tested a link between the skull shape and the brain shape, and there's a really close link between the skull roof and the brain shape, except in sauropods, because sauropods are weird, and their brain's in a weird spot, <laughs> and it's really small. <laughs> hey, most dinosaur brains are really small. Yeah, but in sauropods especially. So Also in thyreophorans, anyway. <laughs> but in thyreophorans, this link still worked. They still have small brains. That's true. Somebody's getting defensive over here. <laughs> But in sauropods, even in the baby sauropods and the juveniles, they still looked really different. So they were weird the whole time. Didn't change. They're just doing their own thing. Yeah. And it worked. <laughs> Speaking of dinosaur embryos, in another poster by Evan Seda, they found amino acids in fossil eggshell calcite, which is basically in the eggshell. It's presumed to be an 80 million year old titanosaur eggshell. But unfortunately, the amino acids are highly degraded 
And they said, quote, only the three to four most thermally stable amino acids preserved, Hmm. end quote. So even within amino acids, which aren't all that complex, even the most stable ones were preserved. Interestingly, they threw a little bit of shade saying that they don't believe that more open systems, basically meaning bone or integument, could preserve higher order proteins (laughs) because... They think that eggshells are a more ideal way to preserve these chemicals. And if eggshell can't do it, then clearly bone and integument can't either. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know why the shade was thrown, but there it is. Unfortunately, amino acids give very little phylogenetic information. So finding these in an eggshell doesn't really help us much with anything. It might come in handy down the road. Yeah, maybe. I've got a few ceratopsian papers because, again, this session was the non-theropod session. (laughs) Except for that one theropod thing. What was the theropod thing? Oh, the paleopathologies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. But that I guess that was because it wasn't limited to theropods. There was a poster by Iswara Padreas talking about how beaks affect teeth, which I thought was a really interesting topic because a lot of times when we talk about birds, people assume that birds developed beaks so they didn't have to have teeth. And that's useful because beaks might be lighter weight or have these other advantages. But is that actually how it works? Do dinosaurs that have beaks not have teeth? Is there a link? Is there a causal link there? Hmm. So they looked into it. And basically, one of the big problems is that when people look into this facial keratin and teeth, The biggest sample set is birds, and no modern birds have teeth. Which I'm happy about. Yeah. (laughs) Some of them do have sort of like serrated, like tongues and keratin on the sides of their mouth, like geese and stuff, but... And I stay away from geese. Yeah, they're pretty intense. But did they lose their teeth because they have a beak? Is it like you have to have one or the other, or getting a beak quickly leads to losing teeth? It turns out that when you don't just include birds, but you include lots of close relatives that also have beaks, the correlation goes away on the beaks and teeth not coexisting. However, it does seem that if there's a keratin ridge in the area, it does inhibit teeth. In other words, the beak might limit teeth right where the beak is, but it doesn't eliminate the whole tooth row. So it might sort of reduce the teeth, but you can have beak Without teeth, you can have teeth without a beak, you can have beak with teeth. All possibilities exist and it doesn't seem that one of them is caused by the other, which is something I need to wrap my head around because I always think of them as sort of separate things. Mm -hmm. Same. Speaking of beaks, Cetacosaurus has a beak and there was a paper by Damiano Landi looking at whether or not there was a shift with Cetacosaurus in its diet over time. And essentially what they found was that adult Cetacosaurus had a more powerful bite and it was a more efficient bite than the juvenile, but it wasn't enough of a difference to support a major change in diet. So in other words, the adult was stronger and more efficient than the juvenile, but it wasn't more powerful enough (laughs) to indicate it was eating something different. So they didn't fill different ecological niches. They still may have because there was a caveat that It's possible that adults had gastroliths that allowed them to help consume more fibrous material and might increase that difference between juveniles and adults. So maybe the biting alone isn't a big enough difference, but biting plus gastroliths might put it over the edge. There was also a juvenile Yamaceratops found. This was on a poster by Min Young Sun. Yamaceratops is a basal neoceratopsian, if you're not familiar. In this case, the juvenile is about 50% smaller than the holotype, and they think the holotype was probably an adult, so it's a (laughs) half-sized individual, I guess. Mm. They found a keel on its tail in this new find, which makes it the basal-most taxon known with a deep tail. So in other words, one of the earliest ancestors with a deep tail, although it's still less than 90 million years old, so it's not super old. And if you're wondering what a deep tail looks like, it's similar to what you see on Montanoceratops. You might have seen. I think that's maybe the most common one. There isn't really any super common dinosaur that has this weird tail, but Montanoceratops is the one to look at, I think. We also saw a talk about everybody's favorite 
Ceratopsian, maybe not everybody's, but most people's, which is Triceratops. Unless you're a Taurosaurus fan. Yeah, or Styracosaurus is another popular one. But this talk, I don't know who presented it because they didn't say, I don't think it was the lead author, but I'm not sure. In any event, they were looking at a 3D reconstruction of vascular networks within Triceratops bones. And what they did was they used a three centimeter thick piece of bone, which is really thick, over an inch thick. Usually these histology slides are as thin as possible, basically, so you can see through them. Mm -hmm. But this is a really thick chunk. And they used a thicker chunk so that they could put it in a CT scanner and see the structure in the bone and not just look for lags or two-dimensional features. They went to uh, the Canadian light source synchrotron in Saskatchewan, and that's because this was a Canadian study. And they use something called phase contrast micro CT scanning, which apparently allows for imaging the borders of pores, which isn't possible with what's called attenuation micro CT. So they got this really good view of all of the vasculature within a triceratops bone. In order to compare it to a living animal, they used a bison because apparently artiodactyls have a similar growth histology to ornithischians. I did not know that. It's pretty interesting. So whenever you need to compare something to an ornithischian, you just use a bison or some other artiodactyl and you've got your modern analog. I think one of the reasons they picked a bison is they had a growth series of bison with ages known based on the teeth in those skeletons. So they could correlate what was going on in the bison of different ages versus this triceratops. And they had a few different triceratops that they were looking at. For the juvenile triceratops, they said it had woven bone with primary osteons mixed together. So it was a really spongy and very woven look to it. It was all mixed up. For the bison subadult and adult, they were much less dense, even in the subadult, than the triceratops juvenile. So in other words, there was less vascularity, and it looked like it had already been remodeled quite a bit. So I think they need to find a younger bison bone to use in order to maybe compare it a little bit better. But it was really cool seeing all of this detail of inside a ceratopsian bone and all the vasculature. Mm -hmm. And last up, we have a talk that was presented by Emmy Bender, and she was talking about ceratopsian ornamentation. Nice. Which, yeah, it's a really cool topic. Her definition of the two types of structures that ceratopsians have on their head were weapons and ornaments, and basically defined ornaments as things that don't have any real functional structure, so they're less constrained by physical requirements. So that includes things like the frill and the little horns or epiossifications around the frill or the nose horn, whereas the weapons were basically the post-orbital horns that point forwards. And that's because we've seen scrape marks on other ceratopsian frills where it looks like they were locking those post-orbital horns and battling each other with them. In general, she found that basal ceratopsians had small frills and small horns, if any, but then later species added much more ornamentation. And as a quick reminder, centrosaurs have more ornaments on smaller frills, whereas chasmosaurs focused on larger frills. In the statistical analysis that went along with it, she found that nasal horns are associated with large bodies, large skulls, large frills, and small post-orbital horns, which I think is kind of interesting. There's usually either large nasal horn or large <laughs> post-orbital horns, not usually both. Post-orbital horns are mostly associated with a large skull, which is also interesting. Mm-hmm. Thing of triceratops with their huge heads. Also found that frill size evolved faster and earlier than frill ornamentation, and that frill ornamentation diversified more in later branches. So it was again one of those where the early ones weren't doing anything too crazy, and then they reached a certain point in time and they started branching out into all sorts of different differentiating groups. One interesting piece was that the nasal horns are linked to other ornaments, like frill size, and that was mostly where the argument came from that nasal horns are more likely an ornament than they are a weapon. Interesting. 
Yeah, I found that incredibly interesting, especially because I often think of ceratopsians like rhinos, and rhinos obviously have that big nasal horn that they use as a weapon at times, but that ceratopsians wouldn't is pretty interesting. Yeah, and not at all how it was depicted in Land Before Time. Yeah, I suppose if you don't have the brow horns, well, in the brow those were brow horns, weren't they, that they were using in Land Before Time? Or were they using the, the tiny little nasal horn in Land Before Time? I think it was a combination depending on the situation. Oh, it could be like it was, if it was going from underneath, mm -hmm. use the nasal horn. Yeah. It could also be that it, it functioned as both and maybe a large nasal horn in the Q&A part. Emmy said that it is possible that maybe the nasal horn had some coloration on it, which would be really cool to see some multicolored horns. We've seen a couple of paleo art depictions of that. Yeah. Some modern animals have it. So that covers most of the topics in dinosaur systematics, diversity, and ecology from this year's SVP. Yep. All the papers we're going to cover. Yep. Because we've, we've been at it for about an hour now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, though. There's more coming next week's episode. We have kind of a miscellaneous other sessions that included dinosaur talks, as well as the education posters. And outreach, yeah. And then moving on into other dinosaur but non-SVP news. So in the Badlands of Alberta, Canada, 12-year-old Nathan Rushkin and his father Dion found a dinosaur fossil while they were hiking this past summer at a conservation site in the Horseshoe Canyon. And it's a humerus from a juvenile hadrosaur, so more hadrosaur bones. And they saw bone fragments, and when they looked it up close, they saw the humerus. So they sent the photos to the Royal Tyrrell Museum, and then the museum sent a team to the site to excavate. And they found 30 to 50 bones from the juvenile hadrosaur, which was around three to four years old. Pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Although, as we know now, by the time they were three or four years old, they were still pretty big. And possibly already capable of making more little baby hadrosaurs. <laughs> we got a quick update on... Dinosaur skeletons going up for auction because obviously after Stan. So the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Science wrote about Stan the T-Rex and how they hope that Stan will still be accessible to the public and to scientists. We still don't know it, who bought it. It was anonymous. Yeah. So since October 2018, the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Science has been hosting Arcane, which is a new Jurassic carnivorous dinosaur from Wyoming. And that was auctioned off in June of 2014 and bought by a private collector who then decided to share the fossil with them by placing it temporarily at the museum. And so it's been on display since March of 2019. The private owner is now looking into several solutions to ensure that it stays accessible. And so this museum is hoping that something similar happens to Stan which would be cool. Yeah. Although it has such a high price that might be harder to justify for the buyer. Right. Who knows? Could happen. Yeah, hopefully. And in other auction news, there's an Allosaurus skeleton from Wyoming that sold for 3 million euros. Wow. Yeah, that's about three and a half million US dollars. That was at a Paris auction house earlier in October. The starting price was at 1 million euro and then it went up three times. So... <laughs> The skeleton was excavated three years ago. It's about 70% complete. It's got marks on the rib cage that may be from a rival Allosaurus or another predator. So there's that antagonistic lifestyle. Yep. <laughs> and kind of based on all this, Screen Rant had an interesting post recently about Stan's price and then looking at the dinosaur auction in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom Seems like they really undervalued their live dinosaurs. Yeah, I remember saying that at the time. If a fossil goes for five to ten million, why are these living dinosaurs going for five to ten million? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially when you can breed them and make more. Especially when Stan went for thirty million or over thirty million. It's true. Although maybe in the collector's market of Jurassic World world, the value of fossils has plummeted, and oh, like a, yeah. a fossil might only be worth like hundred thousand dollars or less that's true because everyone... you know there are live ones out there yeah and people be more excited about that kind of thing mm -hmm. that's a good point sort of like how valuable is a fossil horse when you can buy a real horse that's true i didn't think about that <laughs> but speaking of dinosaurs that were sold at auction there's a cast of Sue the T-Rex, because Sue was sold at auction, that will be at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis from March 6th to July 25th of next year. 
and Sue's going to be next to Bucky, their teenage T-Rex. The museum's also working on renovations to redesign the area around Dinosphere. They're going to finish it in spring of 2022, and they're going to have fossils from the Jurassic Mile dig site in the Bighorn Basin in Wyoming, as well as like sauropods standing on the walkway ramp, and then marine fossils nearby. Wow, that's a lot of new dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. At first, I was thinking they're just leaning really heavily into the T-Rex world, but adding sauropods too, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Near Golden, Colorado, artist Pat Madison created a family of really colorful Triceratops sculptures. There's a baby, two moms, and a dad. They're on his friend's private property at the corner of Highway 93 and West Avenue. So if you happen to be driving by there, you can see them. And he secured them with rocks and wires. Apparently, it's a windy area. (laughs) They're really pretty, though. One of them, it's a rainbow of colors. And they have this kind of kaleidoscope origami look. There's another one that's red and black, another is amber colored, and the baby's silver. Did you say what they're made out of? Are they life-size? They look life-size, or at least life-size-ish, but I couldn't tell what the materials. Something lighter than rocks, apparently. I like a good dino art. Mm-hmm. In Charleston, South Carolina, the Mace Brown Museum of Natural History at the College of Charleston has a new Triceratops and T-Rex skull cast. So the T-Rex skull is of Scotty. And these skulls are part of a three-year plan to expand and renovate the museum. Lots of museums doing that right now. Yeah, it's a good time to renovate if you have the money. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of renovations in Glasgow, Virginia, the Glasgow dinosaur that's been there for about 20 years is now getting taking a break to get some renovations. And in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, David Merritt, who is the grandson of the artist... Louis Paul Jonas, who worked at the American Museum of Natural History and created Sinclair's Dino Land. Those are those nine life-size fiberglass, scientifically accurate dinosaurs at the time for the 1964 New York World's Fair. It's a mouthful. (laughs) So he's the grandson of this artist. And Jonas, the artist, made a triceratops as part of the 1964 New York World's Fair, one of the fiberglass dinosaurs. And that sculpture is now in Windsor, Ontario. And so David Merritt, grandson, is offering to either restore it or find it in a new home because it's been many years and needs some renovations. And if it's made out of fiberglass and it's been outside in Canada, yeah, probably needs some TLC. Yeah, yeah. And currently the Triceratops is at the Windsor Sculpture Garden. Apparently, Jonas, who made it originally, kept the molds of his Dino Land sculptures and made a lot of copies. So you actually see these in museums and zoos today. Hmm. And his grandson, David Merritt, is a special effects artist who also restores dinosaurs. So it all works out. The city council has to decide and they have to figure out if they can pay for the cost of restoration. Yeah. But I thought that was an interesting backstory. Yeah, that's cool. A long family tradition of making dinosaur sculptures mm-hmm. and repairing. And last, in the town of Wallkill in New York, Neil Gold, who's a semi-retired real estate investor and developer and also a grandfather, as the headline said, is looking to build a dinosaur park. And he's working on buying the land and formalizing plans. He's hoping to break ground next spring. The plan is to have animatronic and replica dinosaurs and a train ride and then places to analyze fossils and dig for replica dinosaur teeth. So it's quite expansive. Places to dig for replica dinosaur teeth. That's interesting. It's probably like little sandbox areas. Probably. Or they give you like a block and you Mm. chip through it to find the replica tooth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds like it could be a fun place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Pararabdodon, which was a request from Elrex via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. Pararabdodon was a hadrosaur dinosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Spain in the Tremp group. It was probably bipedal, quadrupedal. It was an herbivore, and it was estimated to be about 20 feet, 6 meters long as an adult. Pararabdodon had a tall back. It had these tall neural spines, like other hadrosaurids. Pararabdodon was named in 1993 by Casanovas Cladeus and others, and it was named as Isonens. The genus name means near Rabdodon. That's because it was originally thought to be a Rabdodontid, and that name means fluted tooth, so the whole name means near fluted tooth. So again, originally thought to be a rhabdodontid or maybe even a primitive iguanodontian, and it was found in the Sant Roma da Bella fossil locality, also known as SRA. In 1997, Laurent and others changed or corrected the species name from Isonense to Isonensis. Just to be consistent with the ICZN, how you Latinize things, mm -hmm. rules. And the species name refers to Isona because it was first excavated in 1985 at the SRA locality, and that's in the Pyrenees near Isona, Lleida, Spain. They found postcranial remains, the vertebrae, and the maxillae. Other material has been referred to Pararabdodon, but now that material is thought to be from other dinosaurs. Oh, really? Yes, so it was described as an ornithopod from Catalonia in 1987 by Casanovas, Cladeus, and others, and that included cervical vertebra, humerus, fragmentary scapula. The scapula, or the shoulder bone, had this narrow neck, but that could be the way it was preserved. And then in 1990, more fossils were found, and the material was looked at again, and then that's how it became named Pararabdodon in 1993. Most of the material was thought to belong to one individual, and that became the holotype. And then the cervical, humerus, and ulna was designated as the paratype. Then in 1994, more material was found. That included maxillae, dorsal vertebrae, sacrum, fragmentary ribs, partial ischium. This new material, which included parts of the skull, let Casanovas Cladeus and others reclassify it as a hadrosaurid. And then later, there was some debate over whether it was a lambiosaurine. So as of 2009, Pararabdodon is thought to be a lambiosaurine and closely related to Sintausaurus, which is a dinosaur from Wangshu group of Shandong, China, and that was named in 1958. So now it's part of the group Sintausaurini. They're basal lambiosaurines from Eurasia. There was a poster actually from SVP this year called The Osteohistology of Pararabdodon Isonensis Sheds Light into the Life History and Paleoecology of this Enigmatic European Lambiosaurine Dinosaur, and that was by Jesus Serrano and others. And they found a femur, tibia, fibula, and hemo arch. It's the bony arch on the ventral, you know, the underside of a tail vertebra, of a vertebrate. And that confirms that Pararabdodon is a close relative of Syntausaurus. They did histology and found that it was a subadult with a relatively low growth rate. And they also found it to be similar in size to other European lambiosaurines. So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of material has been referred to Pararabdodon over the years. In 1997, Laurent and others referred fossils found in southern France to Pararabdodon. However, other scientists thought that this material was too fragmentary to determine if it was Pararabdodon. They also found that one of the fossils, the humerus, was too distinct and belonged to a different taxon. Additional fossils found in France that were described in 2003 were originally thought to be Pararabdodon, but then in 2013 they became part of a new taxon, Canardia garanensis. We'll see if later on they come back around and get reassigned back to Pararabdodon. That happens sometimes. That's true. Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> There was a maxilla that was referred to Pararabdodon in 2013, but then in 2019, it was thought to be a close relative instead. There was a hadrosaur bone bed, the Bastyrs poble bone bed, 
found in the Conques Formation in the late 1990s that is thought to be Pararabdodon. But the fossils don't have Tsintausaurin characteristics, and there's not enough material to compare it to the material we know to be Pararabdodon. So now it might be some indeterminate Lambiosaur fossils. And this bone bed includes juveniles and adults, and there's more juveniles than adults. In 2006, Albert Prieto Marquez and others named a new dinosaur, Cotalosaurus colororum, and that genus name means spoon lizard. Hmm. And this is based on a dentary found near the original Pararabdodon locality. However, no teeth were preserved, though there are 35 tooth positions. And it was found to be unique compared to other hadrosaur dentaries. But the fossils are fragmentary, so they said it was possible if more fossils are found, it could be synonymized with Pararabdodon. Then in 2009, Prieto Marquez and Jonathan Wagner analyzed and compared Pararabdodon, Cotalosaurus, and Centausaurus. And they found that what was thought to distinguish Cotalosaurus, it was this indentulous slope lacking teeth, was actually also in Centausaurus. But they thought they lived too far apart from each other to be synonymous. Hmm. They're on different continents. Sort of. Europe and Asia, pretty much the same continent. They talk about a few things here. So they could have said that Cotalosaurus was a Nomum dubian, but unless another dinosaur that looked the same was found in the area, it's possible that Cotalosaurus was really unique for its area. So they decided to keep it distinct and as a relative of Centausaurus. However, they also found some same traits in Pararabdodon and Centausaurus. And since both Pararabdodon and Cotalosaurus had similarities to Centausaurus, they decided to treat Pararabdodon and Cotalosaurus as one. Then in 2013, Prieto Marquez and others looked again at the Cotalosaurus dentary. And by then, more preparation had been done on the fossil. And they found that what they thought made that dentary unique was actually exaggerated from how it was first prepared. And the same goes for Centausaurus. So now that dentary is not distinguishable from multiple Lambiosaurines and not particularly connected to Centausaurus. So it's now considered to be an indeterminate Lambiosaurine dentary. So it's still its own taxon. But Cotalosaurus is probably this indeterminate Lambiosaurine dentary. Oh, so it's a nomon dubium now? Might depend who you ask. <laughs> so a bit confusing with all these fossils being found and reclassified and, yeah, restudied. But the important thing is Pararaptodon, since that's the dinosaur of the day. Yes. And that one's still valid. And our fun fact of the day is that T-Rex had a third, although very small, partial finger. Oh. It wasn't really just purely two-fingered. So some of those depictions of it with three fingers are okay? Probably not, because technically its third finger is just a metacarpal. So if you look at your hand, you know, you've, if you start from your wrist is where your hand starts, but your fingers, there's that in-between area where it's hand <laughs> and not finger. There are just bones there that we have one metacarpal each for each finger. Sort of an in-between, whether it's a finger or whether it's part of the hand, depends on what the flesh over them looks like. Hmm. In the case of T-Rex, it appears that it has the two metacarpals that lead to two full fingers afterwards, and then it has a third metacarpal, but there's no finger afterwards. So the early depictions of it that had three full fingers are definitely incorrect. Or I, should, I shouldn't say definitely, because it is always possible that we'll find another better preserved specimen that has more bones, because it's hard to prove the absence of bones in a fossil. But that third metacarpal is way smaller, way skinnier than the other two that lead to fingers that we know about. So even if there was a third finger, it would be really skinny and be like that weird eye-eye with that really long, creepy long finger. It was on its way to disappearing. Yeah, it seems to be vestigial at this point. However, it does seem to be less vestigial than in some other Tyrannosaurs. So I saw this comparison between Albertosaurus, Tarbosaurus, Displetosaurus, and T-Rex. 
And all three of those, Albertosaurus, Tarbosaurus, and Displetosaurus, have that third metacarpal as well, but it's smaller and fused to the second metacarpal. Whereas in T-Rex, it's not fused. It, it's on its own. Like it's still freely able to move potentially, but it probably wouldn't be very useful, especially since there aren't any phalanges sticking out of the end of it for doing something like grasping or growing a claw. It's also likely that it would have been invisible under the flesh. We can't really tell. The fact that it's not fused to the bone next to it makes that possible that maybe it's sort of like a dew claw on a dog foot <laughs> where you can see like a little bit of a bump there. But it wouldn't have had the actual claw like a dew claw. It would just be a little bump under the skin, if anything. I also feel like I should defend T-Rex's honor and point out the T-Rex appears to have had relatively strong arms for a tyrannosaur. Its arms look stronger than the three other tyrannosaurs I mentioned. And they also probably had pretty long, sharp claws to go with their relatively strong arms. So I don't think it really deserves its reputation as having useless arms. There are much better dinosaurs to fit that description, like Alvarosaurus or Carnotaurus, among others, like kiwis or moas. Yeah. I think it's just funny to think that this apex predator could have a weakness, potentially. Yeah, that's a good point. But it's not so much a weakness because it just put all that energy into a crazy skull. True. But we've talked before about how Allosaurus belly flopped a lot because it had short arms. So when it's running too fast, it happens. And I wonder if that happened with T-Rex. I think we talked about it with T-Rex because okay. I think Sue is one of the ones that has damage on its ribs. Yeah. And we think they might have done some belly flopping. So I would say that is kind of a weakness. That's true. But yeah, that's good to know in case Jurassic World comes true and all of a sudden we're surrounded by non-avian dinosaurs, you know the weaknesses. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app to our show so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our growing community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5hourenergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.